Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Five Smooth Stones. The New Testament gives a strict warning unto the church to beware of giving someone leadership too soon. The story of David and Goliath provides us with an incredible template of how a young man or woman ought to be proven first before being given any sort of leadership position within the church. And wow, what a template David is for us. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Good morning, all of you. Well, it was back in July that uh, Leslie and I went up to Estes Park for the weekend uh, and spent a weekend praying and evaluating certain things. We felt that uh, Ellerslie was, had been going for just over three years and we'd seen some remarkable fruit and remarkable blessing upon this ministry, and yet we felt that God was putting his finger on aspects that needed more attention, and it's sometimes easy when things are going good enough to just not fix things and to not touch things and just hope that everything just gets fine, and yet we really felt a pressing from God that we had to allow him to take us deeper and to refine everything that we were doing here. And that led to a very, very unique message on that Sunday because I had no prep time in the week for a message except for this time of prayer with Leslie. And it turned into a message the night before at around 10 p.m. Uh, and then that message was called the Novitionary. And it was a very significant uh, message. And one of the things I said in it was, uh, we call ourselves Ellerslie Mission Society. In other words, we're to send. That's what we are about. We are about populating the world with those that are ready to lay down their life for Jesus Christ. It's not that we're trying to populate Windsor. Uh, we're a sending organization, not a collecting one. And, and I said, but probably it'd be more appropriate to call us Ellerslie No Visionary Society. Right now, we have a lot of novice missionaries. We're not necessarily full of a whole bunch of missionaries. And so that's what the message was on. It was on the formation from novice to mature and ready to carry great weights. Well, that message didn't get recorded properly. And so one of the things that we as a staff have said is probably one of the most important messages I've ever given. And it was just sort of not there and available. And so this semester, we've decided that we wanted to revisit that message. And so what we have is... Uh, New clothing for a very similar concept. And so this is, it could be called the Novitionary, but that's boring to have the same title. Uh, so this is a very unique message. It's called Five Smooth Stones, uh, which gets me excited just even seeing the title. I was talking with Hudson. I said, my, you know that my message is called Five Smooth Stones? I said, what do you think that's about? He goes, David. I go, it's true. Uh, it is. And I said, why do you think he picked up five smooth stones. It was to fight Goliath. I go, yeah, but how many Goliaths were there? There was one. I go, so why did he pick up five smooth stones? Goes, In case he missed? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a fair assessment. I have a different proposal. I said, but you're going to have to come to the message and hear it. Uh, 
1 Samuel 17, 40. Then he, speaking of David, took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. What a moment in history. Most of us know this is David and Goliath. And yet the depth of meaning that this story has meant to me over the years. I mean, I wrote a whole book called Wrestling Prayer, and it's a study of David and his mighty men. And that study has been so rich for my soul because it applies to every area as far as the gritted teeth and the resolve to realize that as we follow in the train, as we follow in the position of our king, our rightful king was anointed. He is the rightful king, but he's not recognized as the rightful king on this earth. But when we leave everything and leave Saul's camp and we go to dwell with him in the cave of Adullam, and even though we are joined with him in being hunted and despised in this earth, when he comes into his kingdom, we do as well. And we go where our king goes. And if he suffers, we suffer. But when he is exalted, strangest thing, so are we. And we find ourselves where he is. And that message that permeates this story and this picture that comes out of this exact moment for me is one of the richest in history. And yet to say, you know, what's your favorite story in the Bible, Eric? And then to say David and Goliath, doesn't that sound like that's what little kids say? And yet I I think I have to just say it. My favorite story is David and Goliath. I love this story. And yet this is going to be a completely different take Because I've taught on David many times. He's one of my favorite guys to talk about. But this is a completely different slant. One of the things that we teach here at Ellerslie when we're teaching proper handling of the word of God is what we call Christophany. That Jesus is witnessed in the Old Testament constantly. The whole Bible heralds him. It, It speaks of him. And even Jesus in the New Testament declares that. The This Old Testament... It's not the absence of Jesus. It's the very presence of Jesus. It's the word of God. His, he's known as the word of God. The word of God came unto Isaiah. The word of God spoke unto Jeremiah. In other words, the word of God is a character in the Old Testament. And what we see is this foreshadow, this, this coming king. See, David wasn't the Messiah. David was just a shepherd boy that God raised up to be a picture of someone. So that when the Messiah came, he would be of that lineage of David. And he would be like David, but be so much more. And so when you study David, you can see what we could call a Christophany, a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. The four ingredients of the extraordinary story. Now, there's actually a lot more ingredients, but we're going to keep it simple. The place of a famous tree. The preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah the boasting of a giant, and five smooth stones. The place of a famous tree. Okay, so now, if we go back into the days of David, most of you can't figure out where this tree is. It's like, there's no tree in the story of David versus Goliath. Well, uh, I don't know, it used to be some French term like contraire ma frere or something like that. Actually... There is a famous tree in the story. We just don't know it. Do you know where David fought Goliath? It was a place called the Valley of Elah. And Elah means the terebinth, the place or the famous tree, the great tree of old. And so in this valley is a great tree. So the place of a famous tree, well, you fast forward to the cross and we have a tree. 
It is known as the cross. And it's the place of the famous tree, the preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah. Both David and Jesus come forth from Bethlehem. The boasting of a giant. Well, back in the days of David, that was a guy named Goliath. In the days of Jesus, it was the power of sin. Five smooth stones. Well, we'll get to that. The storyline of the kingdom. The ordinary, everyday kid that proves the unlikely hero and changes the course of history. No one would have ever guessed this guy. No way. The eighth son of Jesse? You've got to be kidding me. He's of the line of Jesse, number one, who's just some obscure guy from, from Bethlehem. Yeah, I, I, you don't ever guess that the eighth son of this man, this little small village, is going to grow up to be one of the greatest men in all of history. The vision of Ellerslie. And so now we're going to transition, and what I'm going to walk through is sort of how Ellerslie has wrestled with some of the very themes that I'm going to be unpacking here today. Because Ellerslie has a vision, and it's a big vision. And, you know, the funny thing, the moment you get a vision and you feel like it's a big vision, and you start to get to know God, you realize your vision is fairly small, even when you think it's huge because it's so much bigger than us. But God is not just a little bit bigger than us. God's agenda in this earth is not just a little bit grander than what we could think of. It's exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think Vision of Ellerslie, what we call the return of the Irish elk. Uh, There's some deep stories here that I don't have time to go into, but uh, in the very beginning of Ellerslie, one of the the messages that came out was a message called Majesty Lost. And it was when I was studying with Hudson extinct animals, and one of the extinct animals was an elk, an Irish elk. Ten feet at the brow, another five feet above his head was a rack of antlers that sprawled 12 feet wide. And we're used to little elk up in Estes Park, and we're like, that's incredible. You seen elk up there? I saw some elk today. You slammed on your brakes, went to the side of the road, and stared. And that elk was merely five to seven feet tall. We're talking 15 feet. You see, true Christianity today has been lost, and we have a dwarfish little version that we're impressed with. We stop on the side of the road and say, I've seen Christianity. Are you sure? You've seen the triumphant Christianity of history past. Because I think we've been shortchanged. And we want to see the return of the Irish elk. The reemergence of the mighty men of old. That fits well with this message. The formation of Hudson Taylors and Amy Carmichaels. I still remember there used to be a gazebo outside of this uh, window here in this little courtyard area. And we would come over here at night and the campus was empty at the time and we would just pray. We would pray for acquisition of this campus It would have to be supernatural. We didn't have the resources for it. So how in the world are we ever going to get this place? And I remember standing in that gazebo and staring at this building. And I remember saying out loud, God, in that building, may you raise up the next generation of Hudson Taylors and Amy Carmichaels. The return of the faithful, fearless, immovable, unstoppable church. And uh, I have a new one that I proposed back in July to add to our list, and we'll call it the planting of the terebinth. See, most of us have no idea what a terebinth is, and so it really doesn't have much of a resonation with our souls, but you didn't know what an Irish elk was either. And so once you begin to catch the vision of the grandeur of something, you begin to say, yeah, where has that been all my life? You see, there's an ache inside of us as Christians today. 
And that is that Christianity should be so much more. And yet, everyone around us seems to be settled in and happy and totally content with the marginalization and the mediocrity. They can read the triumphant scriptures that we are all reading, and they are fine with the fact that there's a discrepancy. That their life doesn't match it, and the church doesn't match it. But why is it that those of us that are here, we just can't handle it any longer? We have to find the real thing. We're not exactly sure what to do about it. We're not exactly sure where to go to find it. But at least we can gather together and moan and groan together and say, yeah, you too, me too. And then we band together and we say, let's go after it. You see, the Spirit of God is moving in and amongst the saints of God today. We all feel like we're alone, that we're the only one that hasn't bent our knee to Baal, or that we're the only one that hasn't kissed that false god. And yet God says, oh, no, no, no. I've reserved 7,000 for myself. And who knows, in our generation that could be 7 billion. I don't know how many it is, but I know that there is a remnant. I know that there are those that have been set apart to seek after him, to know him, to give up everything for him. The planting of the terebinth. So let's explain what a terebinth is. Well, in the most basic definition, it's a mighty tree, often referred to as an oak. And so oftentimes the newer translations will just translate it as an oak, an oak of righteousness, for instance. That's actually a terebinth of righteousness. It's impervious to all weather, immovable, bearing a striking appearance. The great terebinth measured between 17 and 23 feet in circumference at its base, and the Jews believed them to have been around since creation, terming them Ogygian, or almighty gigantic from the very beginning. Isn't that great? That's an Ogygian. Gigantic. It's from, in, in their mind, it was primeval. It was before. It was before all. Well, what does that hearken to in our minds? That's a statement of God. In other words, these trees were a symbol along the Judean countryside, because that's where most of them were. They were a symbol in Judean countryside of that which was before and that which stands above and that which will always be. The terebinth was an emblem of both strength and durability. For a terebinth to become a terebinth, it must be planted well, rooted deep, and grounded in the soil to such an extent that it will not and cannot be moved forever. So this isn't just your ordinary tree with a little diddly squat root structure that a storm comes up, a tornado comes through and just lifts the thing out of the ground and throws it. Bring your best, says the terebinth. I'm not going anywhere. The root structure is so established. It's so deep into the ground. It doesn't matter what hits it. It doesn't matter what storm comes along. That terebinth stands and defies it. It is immovable. I tell you what, I don't know that I've ever seen a tree like that. And that's the same with us. You could say, uh, have you ever seen an Irish elk? No, I haven't. But boy, do I want to see him return to the stage of time. I want to see such trees once again, once again planted in Christianity. Look at that tree. That's called an angel oak. That thing, I don't even know that that gives us a proper picture of how big these things are. But it could be close. You know, because these things were 17 to 23 feet in their, their circumference at the bottom. I mean, that's just massive. That thing's not going anywhere. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, says Jesus. Now, Jesus has strolled into Nazareth. He opens up the book of God, and he begins to read from the book of Isaiah. 
And he just randomly picks this scripture? No. He very purposely picks this scripture, reads a portion of it, and then actually declares these words are fulfilled in front of you. He's basically saying, I am that one. And so what is he reading? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And listen to this. This is the work of Jesus. That they might be called trees, or terebinth of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. So when God is planting a tree, you know, the gospel is likened to a seed. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a sower who comes out and throws down a seed. But what is he throwing down? What kind of seed is he planting? Some little bush? We're talking terebinth. What God establishes and what God is wanting to grow up in a generation is something that is immovable. Something that is established and firm. Something that causes everyone to stand back in utter awe and amazement. Who planted that? And God is the only one that can get credit for it. That they might be called trees or terebinth of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. I know you don't think of trees doing all that. You don't think of trees building old waste places. I, don't, I mean, maybe in Chronicles of Narnia, trees might do something like that. But they shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities. You see, these trees are not just trees. A tree is merely a symbol, just like Jesus is referred to as bread. That means he is sustenance and life to us. Well, a tree is something that stands and is an emblem in the sky of something so much bigger than man. Something that only God can grow up. And it is established and firmly rooted so that when the storms of life come, it will not be moved forever. The planting of the Lord. A brief study in the planting of trees. So this is what Leslie and I were studying. That one weekend up in Estes, we were studying trees. Because we were walking through the process of realizing that in our discipleship process, we felt like trees would get planted here, but then they would leave Ellerslie and get blown over by the soonest storm. The first storm that comes up just knocks them out of the ground. And we're like, what? It was planted well, but then it blew over after nine weeks? I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So a brief study in the planting of trees. When trees are first planted, there is an establishment period lasting at least two years when intensive maintenance is required. And so if you study trees, if you sit down with a good arborist, they begin to tell you, you Eric, the most important thing about planting a young tree is that it's young. And this tree is extra vulnerable in those first two years. And I could say, why? Why is it so vulnerable? Well, its root structure is not fully taken hold in the depths of the soil. And so it's going to take a while. And also that tree is extra susceptible to certain things in its youth. Certain things that as it begains more strength, it will not be susceptible to. There's certain pests, certain diseases that a young tree is extra vulnerable to. And so I nod along my head and he says, And Eric, do you realize that at Ellerslie what you're doing is you're planting trees? 
and a young tree is extra vulnerable to certain things. But do you know, Eric, what those things are? New plantings also require frequent inspections and intensive care to maintain them through the critical establishment period. In order to achieve these goals, a program of monitoring, soil treatments, and pest management is required. The planting program, two years of watchfulness and care. Monitoring, soil treatments, pest management. So here's the thing that God has been working on me. I want to do this right. But to be honest, I have not inherited a great model for how to disciple young people. So I have the word of God, don't get me wrong. But something was not modeled to me. I have not witnessed it. I didn't go through some great discipleship process. My discipleship process was clinging to the hem of Jesus for 20 years. Saying, God, I don't know how to do this, but I know you do know. Please teach me. And so in this process, I feel like God has gifted us with such a grace in our midst. Because the discipleship process here is rather profound. It is beautiful and it is amazing. But it's not complete. And it leaves some of our trees vulnerable. In other words, it's almost like planting a tree and then saying, all right, we're done in this park after nine weeks. Let's go on and plant more in another park. Meanwhile, this park is like, hey, 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 you that planted me. I'm feeling a little skippish here. I feel a little vulnerable to uh, pests and diseases. Uh, A storm is coming. It's on the horizon. And I'm not exactly sure that I'm properly staked down. You see, in the process of establishing souls, there seems to be an establishment period. And it is a little longer than nine weeks. And yet our model is based on nine weeks. So how do we do this? And that's been one of the challenges that we've faced. New plantings are very fragile and can decline and die rapidly due to environmental stress or pest infestations. Doesn't that sound like our spiritual life? Frequent inspections are essential to detect subtle changes in plant health and pest infestations. I'm just going to get right down to it. Whether we like it or not, a discipleship establishment season of our life is needed. When we go from being all about self to all about Jesus, it's like we are literally being replanted. We are being lifted up by some crane known as the Spirit of God and boom, stuck in a new soil. But it's a foreign soil. We're not used to being planted in Christ Jesus. And our roots don't go very deep. We're we're not gripping it yet. We're in it, and we know we're in it. We know we're in a new environment, and it's very real to us. But there is a season that is needed for us to stretch forth our roots and get a grip on that rock. To get a grip in this new soil known as truth. And then when the winds and the rains come after we've been established, because when we're first established... All hell seems to break loose. It's like God's, or the, the enemy sends forth all the plagues against us. Like, get that young tree. Get that young tree. Go! Annihilate it before it gets established and turns into a terebinth. But we don't understand this dynamic. We don't understand this drama, and so we're caught off guard with it. And oftentimes, even the disciples, speaking of like Ellerslie, don't fully grasp how this battle works and how the establishment period works. Ellerslie's mission dilemma. You know, all this came about when we've had so much interest from around the world in you guys. I know it sounds strange. You just arrived a week ago. You're like, me? Whoa, me? 
our graduates are of great interest to a lot of ministries around the world. And we have a lot of interest. We have a lot of opportunities that are just sitting there. I mean, well, I could fill a lot of opportunities with you guys. However, when we were sitting down as a staff and we were evaluating this, because I think we had at the time like 14 different things that we were trying to walk through of like, well, they're needing this. This church needs a pastor. They just need uh, missionaries for frontline danger work uh, over in uh, closed countries. And we're going through all these things. And I remember feeling like, well, hmm. Because we were walking through some different names of people that have said, I'm ready. Uh, I want to go. I'm thinking, I don't know that I feel comfortable sending them into that situation, though. I think they need a little more time. Yeah, I, I really feel that we need more time. Uh, I mean, it's not that you couldn't do it. It's that there's greater strength needed for what you're headed into. One thing I know about the position I have is that it is very, very, very difficult. And the weights that I carry in my position would have crushed me even a few years ago. The grace that I need for my position is the grace I have. But there's also a growing up unto something. And when I was in my 20s, I think you guys have heard the story. I was in the hospital with a stress disorder. I mean, how pathetic is that? And my weights that I was carrying felt like they were crushing me back then. I mean, I couldn't handle it. I was, had knives in my back from other church people. I mean, I just was shocked with the breakdown of, of the Christian culture because I was seeing it up close. And I couldn't believe Christians would do that. That was when I was in my 20s. My weights that I carry now are 100, 1,000 times more heavy. And yet God has given me grace and grown me up for it. Well, the same thing is true in discipleship, that you can't just force someone because of the, the notion that it's better to send than to collect. And this is the pressure I feel in my soul. It's like, I want to just get you out there. And yet I also feel that it's needful that there is a readiness and a ripeness so that you are not destroyed by the first storm that comes along. And you end up throwing out Christianity because like, it didn't work in this situation. It will always work. But you must have the hardiness of soul. You must have the root structure grounded into that rock so that you will not be shaken and you will not be moved in that time of testing. So that's our great dilemma. We have more dilemmas, but this is one of our great dilemmas is we feel like we have the opportunities. And almost every other organization that I know would just send and we have sent. And one of the reasons I'm hesitant is because we have sent and we found that it's actually very difficult for a lot of our students because they weren't yet ready for all hell to break loose on their life. Ellerslie's greatest challenges. Challenge number one. I'm just going to go through two of our great challenges. The foolishness of the current generation. Now, those of you that are students heard the message, the most unlikely heroes, uh, and it talked about this generation being the, the dumbest generation ever the one generation that's entering into college. I know I bring that up just to sort of stir you guys up and get you mad every now and then. Uh, it's not like my generation is very far removed from it, okay? Uh, but it is fun to be able to put it on another generation and say, well, it's not my generation that's the dumbest one ever. So the foolishness of the current generation, this actually poses a problem for us here at Ellerslie. How would you like to run a program, a training program, that gets assigned the task of the dumbest generation ever? Thank you, God. That worked out well. The timing was perfect. <laughs> Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. You see, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, an immature one. And when you are born again, 
there still can be even spiritual foolishness in your soul. It says the rod of correction will drive it far from him. When you study scripture, you'll begin to realize that the rod is actually not just like some stick that says the rod of correction with a nice scripture verse on it. It is actually Jesus Christ. And it does not mean that there, there isn't some place in, in the Christian family for a rod, an actual physical rod. But I'm saying that that which drives foolishness out of the heart is a person named Jesus Christ and is the word of God in text and the word of God in person. And it will drive foolishness out of the heart. And so we, though we may be in a foolish generation, actually have an inroads to seeing that foolishness driven out of us so that we actually can be the wise in this generation. There's a term. Have you ever heard the word sophomore? Sophomore is uh, the combination of two Greek words, uh, Sophia, which means wisdom, and moron, moronic, uh, which means exactly what it sounds like. So it basically means a moron who thinks he is wise. And then all the parents are like, yes, you're a sophomore now. And you're like, yeah. (laughs) So we are sophomoric, which means when we're young and when we're newly born, we're sophomoric. We're wise in our own eyes. It's a huge potential for all young children is they begin to think that they know a lot more than they know. And they're braggarts. They're puffed up. They, They think that they are all that. Contentious. They want to pick a fight. I, I mean, it doesn't even take me long to go back in time to my high school days, and we're driving down uh, cruising Main Street. I mean, isn't it? I mean, how embarrassing. So we're cruising. We're driving down, and some other guys drive by. Like, yeah, yeah. Sort of as if, if they were to stop and say, oh, you really want to fight? And we were put on the gas. Let's get out of here. I wouldn't even know how to fight, but I wanted to act like I did. And there was this contention. There was a constant friction. I actually wanted a friction with other guys that thought they were all that. And that's just how we tend to be when we're young. And so as a result, when we are entrusted with truth, we have a tendency to be contentious with it. We have a tendency to be divisive with it. It's like, you don't believe this? Well, you're wrong. And as a result, the church of Jesus Christ splinters. When you have a young, sophomoric church that still has foolishness bound up, Then it is wise in its own eyes, it thinks it's all that, and it divides very quickly. Impetuous, impulsive, and rash. It speaks way too fast. No, 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 you just said it. Oh, no. And we let things fly. You know, texting, twittering, and emailing, you know how many things have been said that just should not have been said? And it's the aged ones amongst us who are like, shake their heads and go, I can't believe they just are saying this stuff. They're going back and forth. And I've seen this happen so often in the younger generation and amongst Christians. In other words, it's oftentimes even under the banner of fighting for truth, but we're speaking in such a way which is not at all like Jesus. And we're impetuous. We speak quickly instead of weighing it before God and saying, God, I only want to be measured to speak that which you are speaking in this situation. Dismissive of elders, critical of parents, happens very quickly. And I told the students this week, one of the number one things that can happen when you begin to be taught and trained at the most basic levels, you have a tendency to be critical of all the people that didn't teach you something. I can't believe they didn't teach me this. I never heard that before. And instead of being appreciative for what you did get taught, you have a tendency to be critical for what you weren't taught. It's just a not, not a healthy pattern. In other words, instead of being appreciative, which is a far better quality of soul... We have a tendency to be critical. And this is something that Ellerslie inherits. Okay, of course, you could say you're inheriting it too. 
We have all grown up in a culture, and this is the raw materials we are working with to change the world. We're saying, the return of the Irish elk, and we look at uh, what we do have already, what we are starting with. It is the most unlikely generation to be Irish elks. And we are the most unlikely generation to be mighty terebinth. And yet, what do you think God's sense of humor is? He'd love to take the most unlikely and show off. Show off his power and his glory and through it. Quick to betray their mentors. You know, that's not a good quality. And it's something that isn't very easy when you're a teacher. Because you have this sense that even as you're teaching... As long as things are going well, your students will like you. But the moment there's a challenge, they'll betray you, and they won't think anything of it. You know what? As an organization, as a Christian leader in this generation, that's hard. And it leads you as a leader to say, you know what? I don't even want to do this. Okay? I don't even want to try and go down this road. As the last, we, we joke at Ellerslie of all the escape valves that uh, we come up with. The enemy proposes them. You know, Leslie's escape valve is moved to New Zealand. Uh, Sandy's is just uh, knit for the rest of her life. Just leave Ellerslie and knit. Uh, ben is to be a worship pastor at some mega church, you know, where uh, you know they don't have to be so intense and strong about doctrine and make you know enemies just you know overnight just by existing. We all have our escape valves. I don't know. I think my escape valve for years was to become a farmer. Uh, both my granddads were farmers. I'll just be a farmer. The seeds and the land they won't mock me. Uh, Challenge number two, a Christian culture that supplies honor too early. And this is the key point I want to emphasize. We come from a Christian culture that if you have a talent, you're immediately put up in the church to utilize that talent, to showcase that talent, because, hey, let's use this stuff. And the motive isn't necessarily dark. It's not a bad motive. It's just dangerous because it's not the biblical framework for how we handle youthfulness, how we handle new birth. We must be very watchful that this is an establishment, period. And if we exalt that novice too quickly, it actually corrupts the novice. So we're not doing anyone a service by doing that. A Christian culture that supplies honor too early. As snow in summer and as rain in harvest, so honor is not seemly for a fool. Remember that one who has fool bound up in his heart and he needs the rod of correction to drive it out? A child is known as a fool. We just wouldn't call them that. In other words, a child does not yet know their position. They don't have a global understanding of how things work. And so they are foolish, but that foolishness needs to be driven out. And that's what a parent is there for. Well, we have a father in heaven who is very faithful with the loving rod of Jesus to drive out the foolishness in us. Just because we're adults doesn't mean we're not foolish, by the way. And so there's only one that can be truly deemed wise, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when we find ourselves in Christ, planted in Christ, we are the wise. That's exactly what we are. We are the wise. Everyone's opinion is regarded as the same. This is how the culture works today. Everyone's opinion is regarded as the same. The hierarchy of wisdom has been lost, and the hierarchy of respect has wholly dissolved. We don't have an understanding of authority in our generation anymore. We don't have an understanding of gray hair means wisdom anymore. By the way, I have, this is the one time in life I could brag about having a little gray hair. But gray hair means nothing anymore. In other words, your season of being cold and cultivated by truth means nothing. A 16-year-old could come bolting along 
and pick up their Bible, and their opinion is equally as valid as the 83-year-old missionary that has lived on the front lines defending the faith in foreign lands. Something's wrong with that. This 16-year-old knows how to use Google, knows how to create a blog spot, knows how to get a voice out there. The 83-year-old never even touched the Internet, doesn't know anything about it, because in their closed country, they don't even have access to it. However, which one has more to give to the church of Jesus Christ? The emergent or postmodern thinking says, let's dialogue. You share your perspective, I'll share mine. Both are equally valid. The 16-year-old kid's opinion, who has known Christ for three months, is on equal level with the opinions of the seasoned pastor of 60 years. The first three years, actually it would be the first three and a half years, a testimony of grace. God has moved mightily here in this environment. And though I would say in hindsight that our model is not perfect, and though I would say that God has taught us a tremendous amount in and through it, and when I look back at the first semester of Ellerslie, there's part of me that sort of cringes, and I say we could have done that so much better. However, I would have told that first semester that after this semester I'll be able to tell you guys all that we could have done this so much better. It's not that we came in thinking we were all that. We came in saying we're going to do the best that we know to do in this. But what we were doing is we were reestablishing something. And after you go through the process, you learn that you didn't do everything right. However, the best response to that is to change, is to alter, is to do it better. When God corrects you, just be correctable. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So the opposite of that would be he who knows what he ought to do better do it. And that's how a Christian functions. God is constantly acquainting us with what we ought to do. Let's do it. And so even organizationally, that's the way it's been for us. It's like we need to change. God's refinement. Three deeper steps for the Ellerslie training. There are three things that we have felt as a staff God has put his finger on. And these are three things that we feel very strongly need to be pressed deeper. We feel that what we have here at Ellerslie is what we could call a surface humility. And that's not a complaint. That's not a criticism. In other words, it is humility, but I would say it doesn't go very deep. In other words, you could go into two inches of the ocean water, and you're in the ocean water. However, it's not very deep. And so what we would say is, no, you need to keep going. There needs to be a deeper humility that has worked. So a surface humility has been cultivated, but not a deep humility. A a deep humility that literally comes down to the very base bedrock of the soul And gets to that point where it's just like, I really am nothing. He really is everything. I don't care if anyone in this room acknowledges me. I don't care if anyone in this room applauds me, compliments me. I'm fine. Because I know my position in Christ Jesus. You really aren't about you anymore. And I feel that after nine weeks or even after a year of Ellerslie, there can still be that residual amount. And we could all excuse it and say, well, that's fine. Everyone's going to have a little bit of self still in them. And I would say, I cannot stand for that in my own life or in this ministry. I want the depths of humility. I want Jesus to do whatever he must to purge us of us. Any self-interest, any need to validate us, any need for us to be seen, any itch for the stage, any itch for applause, may we be broken down so that Jesus Christ can truly be established. And our itch, if we have an itch, is for his glory. That we are very happy to be overlooked. Who cares if they notice me? I want you to notice him. And then suddenly when a Christian comes to that place, 
They will speak boldly that which needs to be spoken because they don't care about the, the ramifications that may come to their own personal reputation in the process. We believe that we have a simple reverence here that has been cultivated, but the fear of the Lord is lacking in many of the graduates. In other words, a deep and holy reverence, a trembling before the realities of God, before his word. Do we recognize who it is that we are serving? Do we recognize who it is we are worshiping? I don't know that we do. It's not a complaint. It's just saying, God, help us take this deeper. A simple reverence is better than what the whole culture out there has. And so we could just stand up and applaud and go, yay, God, for giving us a simple reverence. And I say, hold the applause. Let's go deeper. I don't want to pitch our tent here. Pull up the tent stakes and let's go onward. God wants to cultivate a deep fear of God in us. A mimicked honor has been cultivated, but the spirit of honor has not been effectively passed on. Honor being the behavior of heaven. When you're at Ellerslie, you sort of begin to know what to do and how to do it. It's like, well, the guys need to open the doors. The guys need to clear the tables. The guys sort of defer to the girls. And it's noble. It's beautiful. And I could call it a mimicked honor. In other words, this is the way Jesus would behave. And so I'm going to behave as Jesus would behave. And it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the spirit of honor. The spirit of honor that when no one is looking, you would still do it. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see you just do the right thing because the rest of the culture around you will pat you on the back and say, well done. I want that spirit of honor in my life at a deeper level, in your lives at a deeper level, that no matter who's looking, no matter where we're at, we're in our own closet praying, and we will do that which Jesus would do in that moment because we belong to him. We tremble before his reality. We have a deep, deep fear of God. And I live for him. Before the angelic host, I'll live before him. Not just for the applause of men. So let's discuss something in scripture known as the novice. The novice, uh, it's not my favorite word, to be honest. And what it describes is that young one, the new plant. Let's look at what it says in 1 Timothy 3. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So this is talking about a bishop. And a bishop in the church needs to be measured after a certain standard. Before someone is ever considered a ruler or a leader of the church of Jesus Christ, he must pass a test. If he can't pass that test, oh, don't put him in charge of the church. Don't you know how sacred that is? No, you need to make sure that they can pass this test. Don't leave your sheep, if you're a shepherd, with just anyone. Make sure that you entrust it to someone who has is watched and hung around you and you know that they have a common love for your sheep as you do. And so when you leave them over to the care of that volunteer shepherd to take over for you when you are delivering bread and cheese to the armies, that, that man, that one that is taking care of them, will watch over them well. Well, a bishop is exactly that. 
And there's a very serious list here. Listen to this. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? How can I say this? If a man doesn't know how to rule his own thought life, his own heart, his own inner life, he's not ready for marriage. If a man doesn't know how to rule his own thought life, control his own body, his own impulses, control his tongue, he's not ready to lead the church of Jesus Christ. If he can't lead his own children, don't give him more authority. This is a novice principle. But if the man can prove excellent in these other arenas of his life, then he is prepared for greater leadership. So this is the summation of that. He says, not a novice. So this is Paul talking, saying, do not select a novice for a bishop. Not a novice. A novice should not rule the church of God. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So there seems to be a snare of the devil. There seems to be a vulnerability, and a novice seems extra vulnerable to something known as pride. If someone is exalted and given a position over the church of Jesus Christ too soon, then there is pests and diseases that can reach his soul more readily than a mature tree. And that disease, that pest, happens to be known in Scripture as pride. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Did you hear that? Let the deacons also first be proved. Don't just accept them. Don't just select a novice. Let them be proved first. If they're a novice, it doesn't mean they're wrong or they're bad. You need to throw them in the trash can. It just means they're not yet ready. They're not yet there. So first, let let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So that little passage of scripture, when Paul is talking to Timothy, he is describing bishops and deacons. Both of them don't select a novice. This is the most basic form of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. And here we are, Ellerslie Mission Society, and we are sending people into position of leadership. We are grooming you to take the helm. And yet, here's a scripture that is actually saying, whoa, 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 Eric, pause. Have they first been proven? Well, they went through nine weeks. Isn't that enough? Have they first been proven? Have they been tested according to a pattern to demonstrate the fact that they are of the health, of the strength, and of the stature, that they've been able to rule the first principalities or the first dominions first? In other words, their own thought life, their own heart, their own eyes, their own mouth. Have they been able to govern these well so that now they are prepared to govern something else well? He that sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off the feet. I don't want to do that. And drinks damage. Well, I don't want to do that either. So what did we do wrong? We sent a message by the hand of a fool. We have a message here at Ellerslie. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you don't want to send a message by someone with foolishness still bound up. You want to see the rod of correction drive that out so that that messenger is a wise one. That messenger is marked by the behavior of Jesus Christ. So it says the legs of the lame are not equal. So is a parable in the mouth of fools. 
As he that binds a stone in a sling, so is he that gives honor to a fool. When you give exaltation, when you give position to someone who is still foolish in their bearing and has not yet rid themselves of that youthful petulance, then you are basically sticking a stone in a sling. Sending a fool with the gospel message. Not a good idea. Now what's funny is so many of the ministries in our day violate this, and yet almost every single one of us in here would say, well, I don't want to say that that's wrong, though. They have weekend conferences where everyone gets together and hears the gospel for the first time in their life, and the first thing they do is go out to share the gospel. And I think most of us in here would say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. To share the gospel, is there? And I would say, probably not. However, because we're not giving them position in the church, and there's a difference between that. But I still think we need to know how to better build up the saints of God to make them ready to not be the fool in the errand of giving the gospel. He that sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off the feet and drinks damage. So as Leslie and I were up in Estes Park pondering these things, that scripture, we kept reading it. It's like, oh... We have a message to send, but we do not want to send it by the hand of a fool. Don't proclaim someone ready unless he's been proven. So, as you just see in 1 Timothy, this is actually a very biblical concept. Do not declare that someone is ready. Do not exalt them and give them honor and position until they have first been proven. Now, the opposite of that would be when someone has proven themselves ready, give them that honor. Send them. Let everyone know that they are ready to carry that weight. So it says in 1 Timothy, let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon. So you want to be a deacon? First, you need to be proven. As he that binds a stone in a sling, so is he that gives honor to a fool. You cannot give honor too quickly. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. The context for this is giving authority in the church. So the concept spoken to, First Timothy, to Timothy in 1 Timothy is do not lay hands on any man quickly. Do not bequeath to them authority in the church. And then it says, neither be partaker of other men's sins. If you do lay hands on any man quickly and send them forth prematurely, their sin is shared with you. Practically speaking, I've had this happen quite a few times in my life, where I end up sending forth a fool on an errand, and what happens? The foolish behavior of that guy ends up being my business. And now I have to pick up the mess. So in other words, we need to be very watchful to heed scripture on these points. To be slower to evaluate and to have some proving process within the church to evaluate readiness. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So one of the ways that we could look at this is like, whoa, whoa, there's false prophets out there. So we need to test every spirit. We need to weigh it. Well, how are we weighing it? It's the concept of proving it. Prove every spirit. Test it. The spirit of God is revealed in scripture to do very, very specific things. He only takes from that which is Christ, so he must be in perfect alignment with the word of God. If he violates the word of God, it's an incorrect spirit. Well, the other way you could look at this is from Ellerslie's vantage point. Believe not every spirit. In other words, do not just take someone because they are excited about Jesus and say, well, you're excited about Jesus. Go! But first, prove the spirit within them. Prove it. Test it. Because there's already enough false prophets in this world. We do not need to send forth another one. You follow? This is a different angle on the same scripture. 
the novitiate. That's a term used throughout Christian history to describe those that are novices and their training process. And usually it was like two to three years. It was a two to three year set apart season of being groomed, but they were not given authority. They were not given leadership. And that was always called a novitiate. The novitiate is the novice in training, not yet ready for the responsibilities of leadership, acclaim, criticism, or spiritual oversight. A novitiate is a hidden one and a humble one. It's a student in preparation wrapped in the cocoon of anonymity while the roots of spiritual strength stretch deep and the wings of readiness are developed. One of the things that I've taught on for years is what's called the cocoon of innocence. Because Les and I have written quite a few books on purity, sexuality, relationships. One of the key concepts is you have a young child and you're a parent. You want to train up this child so that they are able to handle their sexuality in such a way that brings glory to God as opposed to decomposes their existence. And yet most of us, especially the parents in here, would be like, I would love to know how to do that. That is actually a great burden for modern uh, Christian parents to say, how can I pass on to my children something that I didn't have passed on to me? And so one of the ways that we would teach this is called the cocoon of innocence. To recognize that a child needs to be maintained in a cocoon of innocence for a certain period of time because they're not yet ready to have the revelation of the darkness and the debasedness and the perversion of this world. If you expose a child to perversion too early in their life and they haven't yet formed what we could call the muscle for purity in their soul, then they're extremely vulnerable. And so the illustration I use is in regards to a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. A caterpillar is in the dirt. And God's intention for that caterpillar is for them to fly above the dirt, to not be in the dirt, but even though they're in the world, they're not of the dirt in the world. And so what he does is he brings them into a cocoon. And that cocoon is a form of protection in the midst of a developmental season, a season of establishment. And in that season of establishment, they are growing wings. If that cocoon opens too early, before those wings are fully matured, that butterfly will not be able to fly. It will be a hybrid between a caterpillar and a butterfly and may not live in this world well. And that's how most of us as Christians are. We have sprung forth from a cocoon, either that or we didn't have a cocoon, and we've never developed the wings. You see, innocence and purity are very different things. A lot of us think they're the same thing. But innocence is an ignorance of that which is evil. It's an ignorance of that which is perverted. And that's a very healthy thing, by the way, in a young child. As you grow up, God prepares you to transition from innocence to purity. Where you are literally able, with a moral muscle of your soul, to be in the dark world, in and amongst the perversion, but to literally, by an act of your will, rise above it and say, and I will not touch it. See, purity is a decision. Whereas innocence is just a state of being. Purity involves an action of your will to engage in agreement with God and to say, I will not touch this. This is wrong and this is against my God. So how do you prepare a child to go from innocence to purity? Well, you need a cocoon of innocence. When that, and a parent will know that child is ready. And you can begin to discuss with your child certain things that maybe up to that point they've never heard before because they're ready. And there is that moral purity muscle that is able to handle and dexterously work within their soul. So 
Look at the word just changed here from cocoon of innocence to cocoon of anonymity. What I am feeling very strongly about at Ellerslie is that we need a greater training process than what we've had thus far. Right now we have a nine-week training, which I think is great for its purpose, and I don't want to actually touch it. I think it's actually a very powerful program. But there's some of you that need to go beyond that. And so what we have is we have an advanced program, which lasts for a year, and then that's it. So what we have felt as Ellerslie is we've actually changed this whole model, and I don't know how many of you know about it, because when I was talking about it before, the message uh, didn't take, didn't record. So I don't even know if any of you have even heard about it. But we're actually changing our advanced program to seven weeks, and then we're opening up a two-year practicum program, which is practical training, what we could call the establishment period. And we know it's going to be for just a fraction of the students, but we want to be able to provide that type of environment for a longer stretch of time to give that personalized attention to the development and the establishment of that root structure. One of the key things in that is what we could call the cocoon of anonymity. Just like we had the cocoon of innocence, we feel that one of the most vulnerable things that any young planting of the Lord is, is susceptible to is pride. And one of the number one things that is, has a difficult time being cultivating us is the depths of humility. And so one of the things that we are very interested in creating an atmosphere for, even though you, I can't teach someone humility. It's a very bad thing for someone from the outside to say, you're going to learn humility. But I can at least create an environment in which humility can thrive as opposed to arrogance and pride. And that is to be able to enter into a season where you're able to work for Jesus Christ and serve Jesus Christ in such a way where no one knows what you're doing. And you're not supposed to even be telling people what you're doing. You're literally just serving. You're washing feet. You're like at Bonestas Park, digging out mud right now. You're doing that which is not necessarily easy, but that which could give you some kudos and some credit points if you came back and said, yeah, I just spent a week you know, digging out mud up in Estes. And everyone could go, well done. Instead, you keep your mouth shut. And you do that work in Estes, but you learn to do it unto Jesus. And that's going to be hard at first. If any of you have ever dug out mud for a week, you know that you deserve a pat on the back. And yet, are you willing to go without that pat on the back to learn to turn to Jesus instead of men's approval? And by walking through that process of training, it's not something that you can be taught. It's something that the Spirit of God can work through you in and through such an opportunity. Novitionaries and missionaries, what is the difference? What is a novitionary? It is a novice missionary. You see, what we build here at Ellerslie, what our intention is, is what we could call missionaries. Now, that doesn't mean the classic missionary that just goes to Zimbabwe and lives in a hut and builds an orphanage. That's wonderful, and we are very much behind that. But we believe that every single one of you is called to be a missionary in whatever field or sector of life you've been commissioned into. It doesn't matter what that is, whether it be politics or sports, or a classic missionary on the mission field. You are to bring the light of Jesus Christ into that realm. But there is a version of that which would be considered a novice missionary. You're not yet ready to go into Hollywood, for instance, and stand strong for Jesus Christ. You know how hard of an environment that would be to stand for Jesus Christ? A lot of us have the notion, it's like, yeah, I'd like to be a leading man. And so I'm going to go to Hollywood, but I'm not going to be corrupted by Hollywood. I'm going to go in and instead I'm going to turn Hollywood on its head. Who ends up getting compromised? Hollywood's still the same. It's really strange. And now you look a little funny. 
Now you have some hybrid version of Christianity where you still believe it, but you believe it privately because to speak it out loud in Hollywood means you'd lose your job. And suddenly you realize who got to who. Hollywood got to you. If you're truly going to be a John the Baptist in Hollywood, you need to be built as a John the Baptist for Hollywood, which might mean you're not popular in Hollywood and you're not going to get any gigs. It means you probably have a leathern girdle and wild hair and you're popping locust and wild honey for your meals. In other words, you're not going to look like Hollywood. You're going to look like Jesus in the midst of it. And as a result, that's a whole different way to reach Hollywood. And usually, you know, they they reserve crosses uh, for you. This is hard stuff. To be like Jesus in a dying world is not the easy way to go. Are you built for this? Are you strong for this? Are you going to melt in the day of testing? Most of us would have to admit, admit that we melt in the day of testing even when we're in the easy environments, let alone in the great day of testing. What is necessary to make us strong? So a novitionary is a novice missionary, one not yet ready to handle the rigors of the mission field and effectively deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ amidst extreme hardship. It is a missionary in training, one preparing to be sent, one preparing to endure the most challenging difficulties that face those bearing the name of Jesus. So what is a missionary? So we're creating a contrast here. What is a missionary? Well, a missionary is a sent one, or one ready to be sent. One that is no longer a novice. One deserving of the title Christian leader. One who has completed the rigors and strains of novitionary training and has proven ready to endure the hardships of Christian leadership and thus bear the name of Jesus the world over with excellence. So what prepares a missionary? Preparation level number one. This is very simple. Being planted in Christ and having Christ planted in them. So this is just preparation level number one. This is nine weeks at Ellers. I just summarized it in that. Being planted in Christ. Remember, you are being lifted up out of the soil of this world, out of the soil of self, by the crane of the Holy Spirit. And thwunk, you are being planted in new soil. What is that soil? The person of Jesus Christ, the truth of the word of God. The rock, you are being planted in Jesus. Your position is a new position, but your root structure is not yet taken a firm grip. You are new to this soil. And so as a result, when winds and rains come, you're still susceptible, which is why there must be a season of growing down that root structure. But what's the second part of this? Having Christ planted in you. In other words, it's not just you planted in Christ, but then it's the very God Almighty coming in and making this body his home. That's the most basic and rudimentary foundation for truth. Preparation level number two, being rooted and grounded in Christ and having Christ rooted and grounded in them. Okay, so now, you were picked up from the soil of self and planted in the soil of Christ. From being in Adam to being in Christ. But your roots hadn't yet fully developed. Well, what is the second level of preparation? Root structure. Now you're being rooted and grounded in Christ. There's a firm grip, and those roots are grabbing a hold of the word of God, the truth. And now when someone comes up to you and they give you something that is not in agreement and trying to call you back and woo you back to your old land, you have a grip on something. And you literally have that in the hollow of your hand and you speak it forth. It's like, no, I know in whom I have believed. And you're having Christ rooted and grounded in you. So now Christ has come in and planted a mighty terebinth in your soul and that is going down firmer and firmer as well. Christ is in you. 
And he has a firm hold on your soul. And what he asks of you, you will do. Preparation level number three. Being fixed, unbending, and immovable in Christ. And having Christ fixed and unbending and immovable in you. So not only have you been picked up from self and planted in Christ. And not only have roots begun to go down and get a grip. But now they've gotten such a grip where it doesn't matter what winds come against you. It doesn't matter what railings, what mockery may come against you. There is a firmness in your root structure. You're not going anywhere. Oh, boy. That's a day we dream of, isn't it? Don't think of it as being in the land over yonder, the Beulah land heaven, as if when we get to heaven, we can finally be fixed and immovable. This is life on this earth in Christ Jesus. This is the only way he knows how to grow up trees. He doesn't know how to grow them small. He doesn't know how to grow them weak. He only knows how to grow them mighty. Preparation level number four. Tested and fully proven over time to have been planted well, rooted, grounded, and firmly established in the grace of Jesus Christ. So what we're walking through is a concept of being proven. You were lifted out of the soil of self, and you were planted in the soil of Christ. In the soil of Christ, these roots begin to take hold. And now you are firmly planted in Christ Jesus. But how will we know that you're firmly planted and you're now immovable and you're fixed? How will we know? You must be tested. So, what will happen? Winds will come and gust through. A tornado will weave through. It might pick up other trees, but guess who's still standing? There you are. You see, you have proven yourself in and amidst the trials, in and amidst the difficulties, and your life has been tested. Hey, could you be a deacon? We are looking for a bishop. We got one over here. We can send him to you. You see, someone who has been proven, tried, and tested. The leadership-ready test. And so when we were brainstorming as the, the staff, now this isn't a final thing. This is a, an initial uh, first wave, first shot over the bow. But I think it's 12 different things. Is that what it is in your notes? 12 different tests of what we would evaluate a missionary, a no-missionary unto a missionary on. How do we know when they're ready to take that step forward and Go! Go into all the world. Go change it. Turn it on its head. And they have a full confidence. We're not sending a fool on an errand. We're sending a solid wise man to go out there and turn the world on its head. So honor. Well, let's test them in the, in the dimension of honor. Do they bear the nobility, purity, and decorum of heaven consistently in their daily life? Number two, the fear of God. Do they understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin, consistently tremble at the word of God and reverence God as holy? Holy, holy. Humility. Do they, as habit, reject the bait of self-exaltation, willingly and happily enter low circumstances and consistently prove both teachable and malleable toward their instructors? Number four, obedience. Do they demonstrate instant obedience to the words of Scripture and towards their superiors in the discipleship process? Number five, diligence. Do they showcase a vigorous work ethic, a constancy and an excellence in every aspect of their daily life? Would they rightfully be termed a spiritual athlete? Number six, joy. Do they wield the power of rejoicing and do they consistently prove a leaping lifestyle, a joyful soul and a thankful heart? Number seven, love. Do they consistently show the love of Calvary in their words spoken and in their deeds performed? Is it obvious that the glory of God and the benefit of others about them is the highest priority of their soul? Number eight, peace. Do they possess a calm soul, an unruffled mind and a tranquil heart? Do they consistently show themselves to be untouched and unintimidated by baits of fear and anxiety? 
Number nine, respect. Do they reveal a high regard for their elders, a deference to leadership, a sensitivity to lowly, a proper hold on the process of appeal, a full understanding of jurisdictional boundary and a loyalty under their parentage? Number 10, biblical. Do they have a firm hold on the biblical framework for life and godliness? Do they rightly handle the words of Scripture? Are they groomed for excellence in both their doctrine and their behavior? Are they Christ-centered in all things? Number 11, unimpeachable. I like that word. Do they have a character above reproach? Is there any aspect of their life where there remains a doubt as to their sincerity, their purity, their aptitude, or their character? Number 12, this is the final one, patience. Do they possess a heavenly perseverance, an unflinching confidence in the Almighty, and the ability to endure any and all hardships? Are they ready to suffer for the sake of Christ and even to die for his glory? Now imagine, if you're in our position at Ellerslie and someone says, look, we're needing some men or women, some that are willing to go into the hardest place of the earth right now and stand on the front lines. They may die. They may not come back. Do you have any that are ready for such a task? You know what? If I had walked someone through that and observed their life and could answer yes to all of these things, you've got yourself a match. You know what? You're not sending out a fool on an errand. You're sending out a missionary. You're sending out someone who is, even though they're not finished, I'm not saying we're looking for perfection. We're looking for constancy and consistency. If you say one thing with your mouth, you live it with your life. If you declare that this matters in your life, show it. And I recognize that there's bait. I recognize there's temptations in this life. But you are consistently turning to the grace of God for help in time of need. And if you have a consistency in your life, not necessarily a perfection without flaw, but where you have a consistency, you're ready. You're ready to go. The improper planting. So Jesus talks about an improper planting. He says, and some fell on stony ground. So imagine these oak seeds, these acorns that fall into the ground, and they fall on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Dear Lord Jesus, may he save us from training up that sort of planting. In other words, where everyone spikes forth, springs forth with joy and exuberance here at Ellerslie, And then once the first test comes and the sun comes out, scorched? No! No! That's not what we're about. And whatever we need to do to ensure that fact that this is good soil and these are solidly planted seeds that gain root structure, that's what I'm willing to do. So the planting of the Lord, you'll see a contrast here. And it's right in Psalm Psalm chapter 1. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Now that's the sort of tree we're after. Right there. Someone who is literally grafted into God, root structure deep. What's he by, though? He's by a river. He's by a river, and when a tree is planted in the right place, And when a tree is planted well, guess what? There is going to be plenty of moisture for that root structure to go right down into the ground and be firmly planted. Who is the tree of life? That's Jesus. And we are planted in him, in the river of life, the Holy Spirit. We have been rooted deep and we are going to bear. It says, fruit in season, leaf shall not wither, and whatever we shall do will prosper. That's what we want to see return to the stage of time. 
That's the rack of antlers we want to see grow on the head of the elk. That's the glory that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be bearing. Oh, I've been waiting for this, this whole message, just to get to this. The Valley of Elah. Now, it really sort of bothers me that it took me this long to study what Elah meant. I mean, it actually really bothers me. It's like, am I, is it serious that I actually never have studied that? That the Valley of Elah, I've said it for years. I know where that battle took place, and I thought I'd studied this so exhaustively. And then for some reason, I stumbled upon it in the past week. The Valley of Elah, which basically would translate as the place of the great terebinth. Oh, yeah, that's the place of the great tree. Oh, so David and Goliath fought where there's the great terebinth? Oh, yeah, I know where that is. You see, we have no clue about this. That that's actually what it means. That's a real place in Judah where that great, magnificent Ojigian, that sacred symbol and emblem of God Almighty that is from the beginning and will never be moved away from its position. It is bigger than any storm, bigger than any man. No one could ever lift it up and carry it away. These things would rise like 75 feet in the air. Their sprawling branches would cover 75 to 100 feet of shade. Whoa! That's like a third of a football field covered just in the leaves of a tree. Oh, I love it. I love the mental picture of that. The place of the great terebinth. So David faced Goliath in front of a nation. In fact, in front of two nations. The strongest of two nations witnessed this young boy. However, David's first act was not that day. His first noble deed, his first step forward into battle was not that day. This man was prepared. He was trained. And yes, he was young. There's nothing wrong with young. Youthful isn't the problem. It's when foolishness still remains. But foolishness can be driven out in a young age so that when you are 15, you're not an idiot. You're not just sophomoric. There is hope for us, though we be young, to actually grow up to be mighty, even though we are young. And David is a picture of that. But the readying of the novice. David was a novice at one point in time. And Davis, David, David was actually given the grace of God. And yet he was not yet in position. You see, God follows and abides by his own principles. He chose David, set him apart, and then readied him. And then when he was ready, he stuck him out onto the stage. He said, now you can be my bishop. Now you can be my deacon. But David had to be ready, just as all of us do. The sheep herding. David is the eighth son. And it seems that his dad was a sheep herder. And it's usually the lowliest in the family. The, the sheep herding job of being the shepherd is not actually very high on the levels of importance in the Hebrew culture. So, oh, you're the shepherd? So that either means you're not that important of a person in society or you're probably the youngest. So guess who gets the sheep herding job? The youngest, the eighth son of Jesse. Uh, David, uh, we've all spent our time herding the sheep. It's now your turn. And so David was a sheep herder. He was a shepherd. And that isn't necessarily a compliment, by the way. This is the first step of the cocoon of anonymity. No one appreciates what you're doing. No one appreciates those moments when you're comforting your little sheep who has a little thorn in his, his uh, hoof. 
No one's like, what a great shepherd. That's just what you're supposed to do. You know, all of us need to serve our time. Your dad is a shepherd. You're the eighth son. It's your turn. And unfortunately, when you're the final son, that means it's your turn forever. So he was sheep herding. Have we ever allowed a season in our life to go out to the sheep? I don't want to work there. I don't want to do that. That doesn't look good. I want to do this. That looks good in society. Are you willing to have a season in your life where you're the shepherd? Two, while he's a shepherd, it's amazing to think about God's preparation of this novice. So I picture him exploring with his sheep. You know what he's doing when he's exploring with his sheep? He gets familiar with a great big tree. And so he goes down to the valley of Elah with his sheep. And the reason I know that he must have hung out in the valley of Elah will come up. Because I've been studying this valley quite extensively this past week. And it's like, huh, David knew that valley. David had been there before. David understood every nook and cranny of that valley. Every hole in the ground. Every cave. The exploring of the valley of Elah with his sheep. And every shepherd must have a cave in which to hide his sheep in a time of storm. So he needs to know the caves. He needs to know the nooks and crannies. Well, guess what? His season as a shepherd is preparing him for something much bigger. He doesn't know that at the time, but he's being groomed by the hand of God just as we are. But we have to embrace the cocoon of anonymity. We have to embrace the season as a sheep herding kid. Living in a cave. Well, you know, when it started to rain and you're pretty far away from home, he probably spent many nights in a cave. You guys ever heard of the cave of Adullam? Cave of Adullam is the place where David hid out when Saul was hunting him for all those many years. It's known as the rock. And David became familiar with a great big tree, and he became familiar with the rock, hiding in the shelter in the shadow of a great big tree. And he became familiar with a rock. He became familiar with living in that rock, even when he was young. You see, when you're doing your basic duties, when you are the anonymous one, no one is appreciating you, no one is throwing you accolades, and yet you are being prepared when no one is looking. David had no idea that that cave would play such a role in universal history, that that tree would come back to be a very significant tree in his life, and that one of the most important things that would ever take place in all of history and here. Thousands of years later, a guy is coming up and saying, one of the greatest moments in all of history, I'm going to tell you, is my favorite. It's when David, this little shepherd boy, stood up against a giant right at the base of that tree. Who would have known? How would he have ever thought that? But he's being prepared. You don't know how you're being prepared either. But are you willing to embrace the training instead of fight it? Oh, this one hurts. The slight. The oversight. David's the shepherd. He needs to take care of the sheep. You know, when Samuel the prophet comes and says, gather your sons. You see, this is an anointing ceremony. God has chosen that out of the sons of Jesse will be named and anointed the next king of Israel. David's not invited. Samuel asked for all the sons of Jesse. David's not invited. Well, surely it's not David. Surely it's not David. (laughs) What What a presumption. And guess what? Are you willing to be trained in and through this? This slight is for David's benefit. Instead of just getting mad at Jesse and his brothers for how arrogant they were towards him, do you realize that David is being prepared to be rejected multiple times in his life? And he has to be firm. He has to be of the substance where his roots will go down into that rock and he will not be shaken because he is going to be tested in the years to come beyond what any normal human has ever been tested. 
He will be betrayed by his nearest and closest counselor, Ahithophel. He will have his very son revolt against him in Absalom. Some of the things that will happen to this man are so excruciatingly painful. And this slight is nothing next to what lies ahead. However, David is being trained in and through the slight. Have you ever been slighted? Yeah, I have. How did you handle that slight? I could say, how did you handle your sheep herding days? You still may be a shepherd. Are you willing to remain a shepherd? Are you willing to embrace the slight and say, God, train me in and through this. Make me stronger. The anointing. You know, this is just as much of a test. It's right in front of his brothers and his dad. You know that none of Israel got to witness this, and probably his dad and his brothers weren't about to share it. Why? Because Saul still was on the throne of Israel. Samuel was afraid for his life, even anointing him. He's anointed as king of Israel. But it's very possible that David had to struggle with the fact that his brothers and his dad may not have even agreed with the anointing. They might have thought it was the actions of a kooky old prophet. First of all, why would they choose David? Saul is still on the throne. Why would he choose David? You know that uh, Josephus, I almost read you the story of Josephus' account of David. You guys should read it this week. It is so fascinating. Josephus is the great Hebrew historian. He wrote in the days of Jesus. That's when he lived. And he wrote, I mean, it's like a, a parallel with the, the text of Scripture. It's very fascinating. One of the things that Josephus says is that when David came in and they were sitting to eat, that Samuel whispered to him what his position was, that his brothers and his dad didn't hear it. Isn't that a fascinating turn on it? I don't know what happened. Josephus isn't the text of Scripture. However, it is really intriguing because what follows this anointing? The return to the sheep. He's the king of Israel, and what happens to him? He's returned to the sheep. There's going to be moments in your life where God gives you a vision of something bigger than what you're doing now in sheep herding. And yet, what will God do? Probably send you back to the sheep. He's like, well, you're not ready yet. But God, I'm, I'm supposed to be something bigger than this. You can't keep me with the sheep. No, because you're going to be something bigger than this, I need to keep you with the sheep. You see, you don't recognize that in the season of establishment, you are vulnerable to arrogance and pride. You are too young, and you don't understand this, but I build my saints a certain way. You see, God is an arborist. He's a tree grower, and he only knows how to grow terebinth. And he grew a terebinth in David. But how he grew it is rather challenging. You were slighted, then you were anointed. It's like, take that, brothers. And then what do they say? Yeah, you're nothing to us. Go back to the sheep. Are you going to go back to the sheep? Will you do it willingly? Will you still love those sheep? Or will you complain? Will you moan and you groan and say, well, I'm king of Israel. I'm above this. Well, what happens? So here's the way I look at it. I look at him as climbing up on the great tree and getting familiar with that great tree. This is my entire picture all this time. As he's, he goes up into the tree and his sheep are down there at the base and he gets familiar with this tree. And he stares out at the Valley of Elah, and maybe he ponders all these things. But he's being prepared. He's familiar with the very territory that will mark his future. And in and amidst this, God is going to test him. And you will be tested the same exact way. David's tests were what we could call the lion and the bear. Because David was entrusted with something. He's a shepherd. Now, it may be unjust that he is a shepherd, but he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd entrusted with sheep. He should be entrusted with an entire nation, but all he has is a little flock of sheep. And a lion comes along and grabs one of that flock. Now David could say, come on, I'm not going to risk my life 
as the king of Israel to rescue a little sheep. However, one of the things that Josephus says that Samuel whispered in his ear is that any battle you enter, you will be kept safe. When you fight for the glory of God, nothing will touch you. So I can just imagine him mulling this over, standing in the great tree, hopping down, running after that lion, breaking his jaw. You see, he risked his life. But this is a test. This isn't quite Goliath level yet. But he's being trained and groomed. The bear. Uh, you know, our moms are not going to counsel us to go out and hang out in the Valley of Elah, 13 miles from home, and run after lions and bears. But this man is being trained for running after something even bigger. The service unto Saul. It's hard to know when all these things happened. This is the time that many would say it happened. Is even after he had destroyed the lion and the bear, now he is called. Saul is plagued by evil spirits. And his soul is literally in agony. And the only thing that will settle him is the playing of a harp. And so someone in Saul's intimate council says, I know someone who plays a harp. I don't know how they knew David, but they knew that David played the harp and he sang. And so he called upon the son of Jesse. Little do they know who they're calling upon. They're calling upon the one that is actually anointed king of Israel. And what is that one called to do? But to serve the king. Think about that. That is quite something to come in and sing a harp. And what is this king doing? He's hurling, what was it? Spears, Adam. Spears, that's not very grateful. And yet, what is David being tested to do? Are you willing to serve and wash the feet of the Lord's anointed even when he is undeserving? Are you willing to do that which is right and that which God commissions you to do even though you should have that position? You could do it so much better. Can't you just hear the bait? Instead, he says, this is the Lord's anointed. If God wants me to be king, I submit to his timing. I will not ever try and usurp a position that is not mine. I will gladly take the lowest place and not fight it. The return to the sheep. You know where David was when the, battle of, uh, when the Valley of Elah and the battle against the Philistines took place? He was with the sheep. Saul, when he heard the Philistines were coming, actually sent David back to his father. So David, instead of being sent to war, was sent back to the sheep. So David is with the sheep at the time when the Philistines are standing for 40 days against the Israelites. And Goliath is marching out and boasting his boast. Who is the man chosen for the hour? It's David. He's not invited. He's too young. And so as a result, guess who has to go back to the sheep? This is a man who is being groomed. He knows how to run after a lion and break his jaw, run after a bear. Who else in Israel is ready to run after a giant? And yet God has one more test for him. Will you submit? Will you go back and serve your father again? And what does his father have him do? The sheep. Dad, I, I can fight. Son, the sheep need to be tended. The sheep. I'm king! what he could say. Instead, what did David do? Yes, Father. He goes to the sheep one more time. The lowest position in Israel, right before he's going to be exalted to the highest. Do you see a pattern here? Do you see something that means something to you? Are you willing to submit to God's training instead of fight it? Instead of yearn for you to be seen, are you willing to yearn for God to be seen? God on his terms. The errand boy. That's what he was. He wasn't a soldier. He was given bread and cheese and to check on his brothers. He's the king of Israel. Rightly anointed by Samuel, he's the king of Israel. And he's an errand boy with bread and cheese. However, 
God is bringing him to a place he's very familiar with, the Valley of Elah. just happens to be where Goliath stands, is in the place that he knows. And he strolls in and he overhears the boast. And we could call this the moment. The moment that he's been prepared for. See, God has groomed a novice into a man. And this guy isn't even that old. He might have been 15 at the time. However, he's ready. And God knows that he's ready. God has set the stage. Oh, look at my my subtitle here. At the place of the great terebinth. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was prepared for the great tree. And when he strolled into that valley of Elah to stand against the powers of sin, guess who was ready? Jesus. David, at that day, at the place of the great tree, arrives to behead, to decapitate, to crush the head of the Goliath. Being proven for the task. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul. David's like, hey, is there not a cause? I'll stand against him. So this is brought to Saul. And they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Have you ever thought, why did Saul allow him to go? Well, one interesting thing about Saul is he knew David. We don't read it in this passage, but he knew David. David had actually played for him. And so he knew that David had something. I don't know that he knew that David was anointed king of Israel. But he knew that David had the spirit of God. It was evidence to him because every time he would play, those evil spirits would be quelled. Strange as that is. So he said, then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, I'm not a novice. I'm not a novice. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. See, and he has defied the armies of the living God. Anything that defies the army that I have been called to shepherd, I defy it, and it will not be able to stop me. That is faith. This man is built for the battle. He knows that what Samuel whispered in his ear is true. He will not be stopped in his errands. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. I wish that that was translated as paw. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So listen, so Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not proved them. He's like, whoa, I haven't proved this. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not proved them. So David took them off. You see, David was proved with shepherd's artillery. He was not proved with these, this other weaponry. He couldn't walk in it. He couldn't move. He knew that God would be faithful, but he had to do that which was proven in his soul. He was a novice that was built for such a day, and that which was proven in his soul, he was ready to wield. Swords and coats of mail? He wasn't. A shepherd's sling and five smooth stones? He was. Novitionary training. Proving God faithful and being proved by God as faithful. What's happening to David this entire time? He's proving God faithful. The whispers of Samuel into his ear. 
He's set apart. He has the power of the Holy Spirit. When he goes to protect that which is entrusted to him, he will be governed. He can play a harp and Saul, the king of Israel, is silenced. Oh, he's spared out of Saul's presence multiple times, even though there's a spear being hurled at him. Proving God faithful and being proved by God as faithful. The four restraints of the novitionary. So when you are being trained as a novitionary, there's four things I want us to begin to ponder. Four things that I would call restraints. You see, these restraints at a certain level will be lifted as you progress in your growth as a Christian leader. Some of them will always be there. But they are things that you must be very aware of as you are growing up. First of all, restrain to not claim a position that has not yet been given you. David was anointed king, but he did not yet have the throne of Israel. And he refused to claim it. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy, Saul, into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with a spear, right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Saul is sleeping right at their feet. And I don't know if they're whispering, like, let me do it. But Abishai has a spear above Saul's head, and he says, do not touch him. David makes it very clear in and through his life, God will give me this throne in his time. I do not need to claim it in my time. Number two, restrain to serve unnoticed and unappreciated. This is a hard one. But you are literally choosing to serve unnoticed and unappreciated, and you embrace it when it happens. Serve family. That's what David did. What do you think herding the sheep was for? It was for serving the family. He was serving his father. He was serving his brothers. So that they could grow up and they could learn trades of a much more nobler nature. And he was the one taking the hit. And he was serving his family. Serve unnoticed. Serve unappreciated. Respond with heroic action even when no one notices. You know that no one may know that he went after that lion. No one may know that he went after that bear. Sprint unto every challenge with confidence. Serve the church currently plagued with weakness. Deliver bread and cheese unto your elders. Number three, restrain to the simple shepherd's artillery, faith in the Lord of battles. God in this season wants to train you how to lean on the most simple weaponry that you have. The weapons of your warfare that are mighty, the pulling down of strongholds, which starts with the instrument of faith. He says, learn to wield this. But I don't look cool. I don't have a sense of power in this world. They're not impressed with my faith. Learn to wield a shepherd's sling. And though the world may not appreciate it, you will be prepared for the day of battle. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. This must be a different translation. I always have the word hasted in there and for whatever reason, it must be the New King James. The word is hasted where it says hurried. It means to sprint to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. David sprinted after the lion, sprinted after the bear. Guess who is ready to engage in battle? This guy. How? Well, he was trained. He was first proved on a lion and a bear in years of sheep herding. And so as a result, guess who sprints towards the giant? I mean, this is insane. Insane. 40 days, all of Israel is trembling. And what does he do? He sprints. 
because he doesn't have the common mind. He doesn't have the same fears as everyone else in Israel. He knows the power of his God. He has sat in the tree. He has dwelt in the cave. He has humbled himself and been willing. He listened to the whisperings of the mighty prophet and he believed them. And he has proven them in his life that God will sustain him in battle. Number four, restrain to always take the lowest place and never presume a higher one. This is a hard one. In every situation, you look for the lowest seat and you gravitate towards that. Always, in every situation. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. What did David do? He went and took the lowest place. He was a shepherd. The, the guy was anointed king. If there was anyone that had the right to slay Saul, to just stroll into Israel and say, hey guys, Samuel the prophet anointed me, it would have been David. And yet what did he do? He took the lowest place. He was an errand boy, bread and cheese. And yet guess who exalted him? Took him and said, I have my man right here. I've proven all of you weak. Forty days you were not ready. But on the 41st day I brought in the man after my own heart. The man who has been proven. Come forth, David. Show them what I taught you. And he did. Then you will have glory. Because he will say, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. He was faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much. How you handle your shepherding days proves how you will handle the days of great strength. And if you fail to handle that which is least, if you are not faithful in that which is given you, this opportunity, then you will not be faithful in the much, but you will be overcome with pride. David proved faithful with little and therefore also proved faithful with much. The four ingredients of the extraordinary story. It's the place of the famous tree, the preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah, the boastings of a giant, and five smooth stones. The storyline of the kingdom, the ordinary everyday kid that proves the unlikely hero and changes the course of history. So now, let's start remembering what this points to. This points to Jesus Christ, and it points to Jesus Christ being formed in you. See, it doesn't just showcase the power and the grandeur of Jesus in the Valley of Elah as he stands against the power of sin and decapitates. It crushes the head of the serpent. That is the day of the great tree, but it also includes us being brought in and grafted in and planted into that great tree. We have been brought into the valley of the great tree. We have been planted, firmly established, rooted in Jesus Christ so that we too can stand in a day of testing. The vision for Ellerslie, let's just put it simple, the return of ruddy shepherd boys to Israel who live in the shadow of the great terebinth and remember his almighty power and who reach into the brook and grab five smooth stones instead of just one. All right, now let me explain. Love this. Here's my mental picture. David, when he strolls out into the valley of Elah, there's one thing that is legendary. You know that Gath, where Goliath is from, is not that far from where David lived? I, I, growing up, I always pictured it some other land, foreign country, and Goliath like, boom, 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 makes his way all the way to Israel and goes, hey, you! Actually, he's in the land of Judah. 
That's where Gath is. It's in the territory of Judah. There was a stronghold of giants. Five of them. You hear that? Five giants. Guess who was their lead, their head? Goliath. Goliath was the head. Many people have said that it was the four brothers of Goliath. Whether or not, all it says is they're the sons of the giant. So either they're the sons of Goliath, the brother of Goliath, doesn't matter. There's five Goliaths. There's five giants. And David may be thinking that when he stands up against one, he may have to stand up against all four. When he stood to stand up against Goliath, he technically was standing up against Goliath and his four brothers. That's an incredible twist to the entire thought of him reaching in and grabbing five smooth stones. You see, there's two different ways we could look at it. David has been prepared for this day. But he's a little wobbly neat. Okay, he's a little insecure. And so he reaches in and grabs five instead of one just in case he misses. However, he's sprinting toward Goliath. If he misses, he's in an all-out sprint right there for Goliath to go whop and destroy him. It's not the best strategy. In fact, those four extra stones are going to slow you down. Or there's another option. One for you, one for you, one for you, one for you, and one for you. I defy all of you. This is in the valley of the great tree. Back in the days of Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua, there was a cave. And these five kings from Judah all ended up in the cave and they ended up on crosses. And the five kings were slain on crosses by Yeshua, Joshua, the same name for Jesus. The five kings, the five ruling powers of Judah. And so David reaches in and grabs five smooth stones. Here's the vision for Ellerslie. Actually, let me explain one more thing. Okay, David strolls out with his five smooth stones. And he sees Goliath. Now, everyone in Israel, what do they see? They see a 12-foot-tall man-beast. This guy is overwhelming to the point where they're terrified. And he actually keeps moving closer and closer every day. He is defying them which is what David picks up on. He's defying the armies of the living God. Don't you know who you serve? Look at the tree. The tree is standing there in front of all Israel. Don't you know that the one who grew that tree, the one who that symbolizes the emblem, he is so much bigger. And so could you imagine? David strolls out. I can just see the movie scene. Somehow this needs to be made. But Goliath strolls out, and in the line of sight where David looks down, What is above Goliath's head but a sprawling canopy? What does David see? David isn't intimidated by a mere 12 feet. He fears and he trembles before the reality of the grandeur and the might and the height, the stature of the I am. Who do you see when you go to battle? Have you been prepared for the valley of Elah? Have you been acquainted with the place of the great tree? Do you understand its power and its authority in your life? And when you come to the day of battle, do you reach into the brook and grab one stone? Or do you grab five just in case you miss? Or do you grab five knowing that you'll take them all down? A little difference between all of those options. But here's what I'm going to say about David, is he was prepared for the day of battle. And every single one of us 
can be made ready, ripened, and matured so that we bring glory to the Almighty in that day of testing instead of fail as Saul did. Saul is a symbol of the flesh. David is a symbol of the Spirit. When we are groomed and grown up by the power of the Spirit, we will be made ready for the day of testing. The four additional stones in the shepherd's bag. I don't know how to use this somehow, but it has to be used somehow in some either book, novel, or a movie of the inheritance of the four stones. You know who killed the four giants? It wasn't David. It was David's mighties. You see, David knocked out the head. And then the way I picture it is he he entrusted the other four stones in some type of ceremony to his mighties. But it was his mighty men, his captains, that actually killed the four. Ish, ish be Benab, the sons of, of the sons of the giants, slain by Abishai, the son of Zariah, David's sister. Saph, of the sons of the giants, slain by Sibkeh, the Hushtite. He was a captain in David's mighties. Lami, the brother of Goliath, slain by Elhanan, a Bethlehemite, a captain in David's mighties. The six-fingered giant, we don't know his name, but it's extremely intriguing. <laughs> of the sons of the giants, slain by Jonathan, the son of Shammah. Shammah was one of David's three, or actually was in the second three most mighty. One of the ones that actually ran to the well of Bethlehem. The son killed the six-fingered man. I love it. Well, you know what this says to us? There's an inheritance in Christ. We aren't the great tree. However, he grows us up to be like the great tree. We're nothing. David is the one that did it. He's the one with the confidence. However, when we rally to him, when we dwell with him in the cave, when we share his habitation, we suddenly kill lions and bears and the brothers of Goliath. That's actually what they did. Read the, read the testimony. Lions, bears, and giants. That's his mighties. What's the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ? It better start growing up to full stature. We have a vision here at Ellerslie, and it's a lot bigger than any of us can muster up and do, but we have a desire to see the planting of the terebinth. We have a desire to see the rack of antlers return. We have a desire to see the return of ruddy shepherd boys to Israel who live in the shadow of the great terebinth to remember his almighty power and who reach into the brook and grab five smooth stones instead of just one. Uh, Love it. Let's pray. Father, for those of us that need to be tending sheep right now, I pray that we would humbly submit and we would embrace that challenge. For those of us that are being slighted in our life, overlooked, for those of us that have gotten a vision for what you desire to do in our life and yet here we are still tending sheep, that we would embrace it instead of rush it, that we would never try and slay Saul so that we could be exalted prematurely. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would embrace our novicehood. That we would allow you to grow us at your time, in your pace, for your glory. Lord Jesus, build us as you built David. Build us as you did that terebinth. Grow us up as Irish elk in this generation. You only know how to grow things right. So we submit ourselves to you and say, do it right in us. It's in the precious name we pray. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.